May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, for nearly a year we have been listening to Matthew's Gospel. Listening to Matthew's understanding of who Jesus was. How Jesus reveals the nature of God. How Jesus reveals what the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, looks like. Mostly that's based around Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. But he lived and teased that out with his other four blocks of teaching throughout the rest of the Gospel. So in light of all that we've been listening to for the last year, how do you read the parable of the talents? So there's a question, isn't it? So I have two questions for you to get us going. The first is, what questions do you have about that parable? And I'm sure you have some. And how do you understand it? So we'll put a picture of the parable up on the screen. And then I invite you to turn around to your neighbours and have a conversation. What are your questions and how do you understand that parable? You've got two or three minutes to have a conversation, not a long time. And then we'll see what you think. Lots of conversation, that's good to see. So what questions do you have about that reading? We'll start with the questions, because I'm sure some of you might have some questions. Yes. In this parable, is God the slave master? Ah, well, see, that's a very good question. Is God, or Jesus, the slave master? And traditionally, he is the slave master is understood to be the God figure. So that's, that would be the first question. Is the slave master representing God? Traditionally, yes. But others are saying no. So how you answer that question will affect how you read the rest of it. Stephen. Sorry? Right. He didn't try. So it's, that's a traditional way of understanding it. You should try and take risks. Paul. So one thing I was thinking about was that the passage specifically said that the master was cruel and evil and briefly to the side. So if you help the evil person get more power and money, are you doing good or not? Because it doesn't seem to me to be doing good and you're coming to the evil get more. Very Right. Any other questions? Why did the guy who only had two talents make five? Why did he only limit himself to the number that he had? Ah, uh, well, that's a good question. Although two talents, which, as I said, a talent was about twenty years' pay, so two talents was forty years' worth of pay. So he made another forty. So those two essentially just doubled what they had. And they We might be scared. We might have cunning plans on how we might use that money. <laughs> on, the face of it, on the face of it, it looks like we have to develop our talents to the best of our abilities, not to waste them. Right. And that is certainly a traditional way that we understand that. So we use our talents 
uh, to the best of our abilities and not waste them, not hide them in the ground like the, the guy in this picture does. I find it very interesting that two of them are in white and one of them is in black, which isn't, isn't great. And that is a very common way of understanding it. Uh, so if we go to the next slide, that's basically what this says. Your talent is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God. So there have been a gazillion stewardship sermons preached on this parable. And it's been used as a stewardship thing so that God has given us talents and we should give them back to God. That's what stewardship is all about. Any other comments or questions? I just think if you, if you take it literally, because money is the, is the key here, then it will justify capitalism. Ah, well, indeed. And in fact, you would be surprised to know that many uh, people around the world do in the Western Europe use this parable to justify capitalism, especially wealthy people. So, because... They are the ones that have, and so God said that they would continue to have more and the poor would have what they have taken away from them. So you can see that this is a bit of a problematic parable. A few years ago, a long time ago, a few years ago, uh, shortly after I was ordained, so 30-something years ago, I went to Wellington, I lived in Fielding at the time, so it wasn't that far, uh, for a preaching course, and it was a guy who went around the world and taught people how to preach, and the useful thing he taught me was when I'm planning a sermon, you turn your page on its side and you mind map. And, there, and that will help your preaching. So that was helpful. Not much else of what he said was helpful, but never mind. <laughs> and his basic idea was that there was one correct way to read the Bible. And you'll be surprised to know that it was his way of reading the Bible. Uh, as a middle-aged, middle-class white American male. So his perspective was the right perspective and everyone else's was wrong. So he would go to Asia and correct them on how they were reading the Bible and teach them how they should be preaching. And, he, and this is the 1980s, so feminist critique of how we normally read the Bible was wrong because you should just read it like men. Uh, liberation theology was wrong because you should just read it like middle class to upper middle class men from America and, um, and certainly African American reading of this was wrong because they should just read it like white people and, and they'd have it right. And so around the world, especially in the western world, this parable has often been interpreted in some of the ways that we've been talking about, particularly that we should use our talents for God. That's what this parable is about. I mean, the interesting thing about that is our word for talent comes from this story. And in this story, it doesn't mean our talents. It simply means money. And that's a, that's a way in which the Bible has created a word for us, which means something different from what it actually meant in the Bible. So that kind of confuses how we read it. Which is a, this story confuses us, so we read the story in a confused way because of the story. That's confusing. So, so that a few years ago, I was with a group of young people who went to Arake, uh, to a little church that's on that domain there, uh, on just below Bastion Point on Tamaki Drive. Uh, and uh, uh, Hone Kaa took the service, so some of you may remember Hone Kaa, he was on TV. Uh, was quite outspoken about things Māori. 
and he used a passage from Joshua, uh, not Joshua, from, I, actually I can't remember which bit of the Bible, but it was a bit of the Bible to talk about the communities their experience in the 1950s. So in the 1950s there was a community that lived all around that domain. It was a village and it included a church of Whare Karakia and a meeting house of Whare Nui and a marae. And their understanding is, before the Queen came for her coronation tour, the Auckland City Council decided that their village was an eyesore and it needed to be got rid of. And so they were moved out of their village into state housing on the hill, uh, which was probably better housing, but was not their housing. So they then had to pay rent for it. Uh, and then they watched as their houses and their church and their whare nui was burnt and bulldozed and taken away. So the only thing that remains of that community now is that little, little church in the middle of that area. And that was a heartbreaking and devastating experience for them. And so Honey used that passage to talk about that story and to make sense of it and to find good news in there. And as I sat there and listened to that, I realised he was using that story in a way that I could never use it because I've never had that experience. And I don't live in that world. It doesn't mean that my way was wrong or that his way was wrong. It just means that when, when we read the Bible from different places, it means different things. It's like the rabbinic way of reading Torah, which is a multifaceted diamond. You hold it up and you talk about Torah from one perspective. And when you have exhausted it from that perspective, you turn it and start talking about it from a different perspective. Not to find the right answer, but to deepen your understanding of that. Because all the different ways you read it deepens your understanding of Torah. And it's the same with Scripture. There isn't one way of reading it, despite what that man said. There are multiple ways of reading it. And so what we have to do is open ourselves to that, not try to find the right answer, the right way of reading it, but to, to acknowledge actually there are a number of ways. And this parable is a good example of that. Our culture and our history, our life experiences, including our sexual orientation and our gender, shapes how we read scripture. How we read stories like this. So, while in the West, in white context, we have often read the story being about our talents, in lots of other churches, it has never been read in that way. Because this is a hard story. For example, if you're a black African church, an American, African-American church, this is a hard story because they are the ones down the bottom. Their history is slavery. They are the ones who, if they're lucky, get one talent. And this story says that they will have everything that they have taken away by those who have more, which in their case was the white people who lived in their community. And that was their lived experience year after year after year. So there's no good news in that understanding of the story. So they had to find another way of finding good news in the story. So what are some other ways of reading the story? Well, the first way is to not see it as a story about the kingdom of heaven. So actually, I didn't start at the right place today. I went back a verse. 
And I went back a verse to show that actually this we get we kind of get tripped up by the fact that when they put in verses and chop things up into paragraphs, we think these are different things and we don't read what happens before. So Matthew didn't have verse numbers, he didn't have full stops, he didn't have capitals, he didn't have paragraphs. He just wrote the Greek. And the translators now have to work out where the sentences go, and they work out that there should be paragraphs. And they're kind of useful, well they are very useful mostly, because they help us understand it, but because it's a new paragraph and we stick a heading in there, we think we can just read that story on its own. And sometimes the translators are unhelpful. So in this case, it said, for it is like, that's what the Greek says, but a number of translations will say, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Now it doesn't say that in the Greek, but they're making an interpretation. They've decided the story is about the kingdom of heaven, and so they just want to remind us that that's what what it is about. But maybe it's not about the kingdom of heaven. Maybe, like the story of the ten bridesmaids, this is a warning against easy understandings of what the kingdom of heaven are like, which are misleading. So when he says, keep awake, watch out, he is saying, don't fall for these easy understandings of the kingdom of heaven. They will mislead you. They will lead you astray. This is not what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he will carry on in the next breath and tell about the sheep and the goats, about those who feed the hungry and visit the prisoners and heal the sick. That's that's the very next thing he's going to talk about. So how does that fit with the, king, with the parable of the talents? So let's go back and have a look at the story in its original context, the world that Jesus lived in. Oh, there's also the problem of the master which we've highlighted, and the reality at no point is this description of the master disputed, and it sounds much more like Trump or Herod the Great or Herod Antipas, or any despot, really. It doesn't sound like any image of God in the New Testament and most of the Old Testament. It's just a confusing image. So, in the world that Jesus lived in, it was a world of honour, as the Middle East is still today, in lots of other places. And in that world, a family's task was to maintain their their family's honour, and to maintain their family's economic base, their land. But it wasn't so much about increasing honour or increasing their land, because to do that would deprive another family of their honour and of their economic base. So you didn't go around trying to double your land holdings. That was a dishonourable way of acting. And yet in this story... Two of the slaves do exactly that. They double their master's holdings. The master then says, you should have given my money to the bank and I would have got it back with interest. Does anyone see a problem with that statement? Is there any problem with that statement? In our world, that makes sense, doesn't it? That's what you do, but theory that's what you do interest rates are not great at the moment not going to get much back but in theory that's what you do 
Does anyone know what the Mosaic law says about interest? You're not allowed to charge it. You can't charge interest. So in this story, Jesus says, the, the master says to the wicked and lazy slave, you should have done something forbidden by Mosaic law. Think about that. So the two slaves that acted dishonorably are rewarded, and the slave that acts honorably, he holds, he makes sure that his master's property is maintained, he doesn't lose it, he keeps it safe. Hiding property in the ground was still by some people used a good way of keeping your property hidden and safe. There's a lot of property kind of still in the ground because people died and didn't tell anyone where their wealth was. And he acted according to the law. He didn't charge interest on it. So here's the one that's described as wicked and lazy, and here's the one that is then cast out. Now let's think about the story. Jesus has just been having a conversation, an argument, with a whole group of people who had used Roman debt to get hold of a whole lot of extra land. They had more than doubled their land holdings. And they left across Judea and Galilee a whole lot of small landholders who were now landless, had no economic base, had lost their honour, and were now day labourers. Those are the people he had just talked to. So now he's talking to the disciples. And because Jesus acts honourably and speaks on behalf of those people, he will be cast out and he will be crucified. So maybe the Jesus figure in the story is not the master, but the third slave, the one dressed in black. There's one more picture you can put up as well. So that's another way of reading it. And there are lots of churches who will read it that way, because that way gives them hope. They're in the story with Jesus, the third slave. But not everyone is willing to give up on a kind of traditional way of reading it. Yeah. Question? Yeah. This third slave is the one on the right hand side? I I don't know on this one actually. <clears throat> yeah, he's got no money. He's looking a little bit fed up standing in the corner, isn't he? <laughs> yes. Well, is he? Yeah, it's a we we'd have a you can have a theological discussion on that picture. That is, that's all right. So, there are a whole lot of people who do not see this as being about how we use our talents at all, but they still think this is a story about the reign of God, the kingdom of heaven, and they still see the master in the story being Jesus. But, they actually see the description of him being a harsh master as a misunderstanding. And they say, for many people who see God as a harsh taskmaster, that is their first problem. And when they do that, then everything else unravels. So it's still a warning, but it's a warning against how we see God and how that can lead us astray. It blinds us to who Jesus really is and who God really is. 
So one of the examples of this is a guy called Matt Skinner, and he teaches at the Luther Seminary in America somewhere. And, uh, and he um, is one of the team of people who works on Working Preacher, which is one of the resources that I use. And he suggests that this story, well, this whole group of stories that we're just coming to the end of, are not so much about waiting for a particular chapter of history, of world history, the second coming, the end of history as we know it, etc., etc. But it is anticipating a new quality for the way we see and live in the world to arrive. A way that was described in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. A new way of relating to each other. A new way of seeing God at work in our world and in our time. And it begins with the absurdity of the amount that the Master gives. This huge amount of money, which for those listening would be beyond their imagination. So one talent is 20 years income which for many of them is a lifetime because people lived a lot shorter in those days. Jesus was a middle-aged person. We keep talking about being a young man. He was middle-aged, coming towards the end of his life. And so 20 years of hard labor, that was, like, that was a reasonable expectation. 20 years, a talent, that's a lifetime's pay. It's an absurd amount. Two lifetimes, five lifetimes. For those people who had gathered around Jesus was just absurd. And they say that's a great image of God who just gives with absurd abundance. No limits. Because a lifetime's worth of pay would have seemed no limits. And like we're used to a million dollars. We kind of we now have houses worth a million dollars that aren't that flash and but in, in his world that's just a ridiculous amount of money it is in many parts of the world and this offers us an example it offers us a picture of the absurd abundance that God gives us of grace of forgiveness of compassion of mercy of life and so people like Matt Skinner would say this, this story is about as we wait for this new world to break upon us, this world described in the Beatitudes, we are like the bridesmaids that we heard last week in the previous story, the end of which I read this week, actively waiting, participating in that world, participating in that absurd abundance of God. And allowing that absurd abundance to shape us so that we then are able to replicate that, double it in the world, so that this world we are waiting can come to be. We join in that God, in the work of God, in doing that. So thinking about the bridesmaids last week who were actively waiting, we are actively waiting with them knowing that our flasks are filled with an absurd abundance and we need to allow the absurd generosity of God to flow through us. So when we read this with the Beatitudes, this is not a story about the rich getting richer and it's not a story about us using our talents 
This is a story about God's generosity, abundant, absurd abundance, absurd generosity to us and to the world, and us taking part in that. So three ways of reading this one little parable. None of them are right. And none of them are wrong. Very wise, Tom. They all have an element of truth to them, and they all need to listen to the other two. So have a conversation. Which one speaks to you? And what have you learnt? And which one speaks to your life today? And what is the invitation in that? So what have you learned? What has stood out? And what, which way of reading it speaks to you today and how you live your life today? So we have a conversation for one or two minutes and then we will say some prayers.